0: or small balls called ballots were used for the same purpose. And we use the word ballot to mean this, the same thing. And it's not a ball anymore. We've lost that connection with it.
1: Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryants, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, let's talk more about some of these uh, terms that we've talked about before related to politics and government. Boy, we've talked about a whole lot and we're going to talk about some more. Let's, Let's start with the word bureaucracy. Where does this come from?
0: Yeah, well, it tends to be used rather negatively these days, but the earliest meaning of bureau was to uh, a table. It was used for accounting, so you would figure out the budget or calculate the exchange rate or whatever at the bureau, and the word still applied to some kinds of furnishing, for example, bureau drawers, Although these days, uh, I don't know, you might hide a little money in your sock drawer or something, but you don't usually think of money in connection with those kind of bureaus. Mm -hmm. But the business aspect of the term led to what's used to mean an office or organization. And things like, we're familiar with news bureaus, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the United States Farm Bureau. Uh, Even towns will often have a visitor's bureau And, of course, we all know about the Better Business Bureau and credit bureaus and and so on. There's lots of different bureaus, not always connected with money. So the association with government offices leads to the mostly negative terms, bureaucrat, bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. And, of course, big businesses can be very bureaucratic, too.
1: Sure. There's nothing unique about uh, the private sector that It makes it immune to this phenomenon.
0: The OED defines uh, bureaucratic as, quote, characterized by behavior or practice regarded as typical of bureaucracy, Mm
1: -hmm. as an
0: excessive or obstructive concern with formal procedure. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's often used by conservatives who advocate shrinking government and eliminating or privatizing the work of bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. Uh, They usually don't recognize or mention that private industry is full of bureaucratic behavior, uh, where you ask about some improvement that could be made to the structure of a company, and they'll say that's not company policy. Mm-hmm. It's been entertaining to watch uh, Texans being rescued from the floods and and other Southerners who are usually so anti-bureaucratic and and saying how great the government has been coming in and giving aid promptly and so on didn't do so well after Hurricane Katrina. But uh, FEMA seems to have learned some lessons from the, that bad experience.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, bureaucracy and uh, re- we also refer to that as red tape. If- related term when you talk about bureaucracy in the, in that sense of negative connotation you got red tape also i got interested in red tape i thought i'd look up where that came from and it was apparently um there was a colored tape it was either pink or red that would bind and secure official documents so um You know, if you want to cut through the red tape, that's the expression, right? Let's cut through the red tape. Let's get right down to business and get, you know, just wipe out all these rules and regulations. We'll cut through the red tape. But uh, actually, if you think about it etymologically, if you cut through the red tape, what you're doing is you are getting into those uh, documents and into all of those rules and regulations rather than the other way around. Nevertheless, popularly used to cut through the red tape means to right. throw those rules and regulations out the window so we can just really get something done. We're not going to have a meeting about this. We're just going to do it.
0: And, of course, red tape doesn't really have an objective meaning. It's whatever rules and regulations you don't like or find troublesome are called <laughs> red tape.
1: Yeah, right. Well... Probably similar to bureaucracy. Uh, i got to deal with all this bureaucracy when I want to register my car.
0: Of course, that was one of the main reasons that the British went through the Brexit withdrawing from the Economic Union was that they didn't like all the regulations that were coming out of Brussels and getting them tied up in red tape. Mm -hmm. Now they're not so sure that that was a good idea.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about a word that has implications not just the way you're first going to talk about it, but uh, other implications down the road, and that's this term bull, b-u-l-l. Uh, that's that's the animal, right? That's the, the a,
0: well, yeah, <laughs> but not always. In this case, it's the papal bulls that I was going to talk about. Okay, uh, that's a different kind of law, okay. and in Latin, uh, bulla. Ancient Latin "bulla" was a ball, literally like the ball you would play with. Uh, later, it's the circular seal that's attached to the Pope's edicts. Whether with, they didn't have red tape back then, but uh, they did have the circular red seals, and then the edict itself came to be referred to as a bull. So the notion that the pope's statements are infallible was formalized only in 1870. It was a kind of a widespread belief, sort of, but it never became actual dogma in the church until uh, 1870. The vast majority of papal bulls are not considered infallible by that standard. And I think a lot of non-Catholics and even some not very well-educated Catholics, assume that any papal bull is infallible, but that's not the case. The very first one that was declared infallible was the doctrine of immaculate conception, which was the ruling that Jesus was born without original sin, that his mother conceived without original sin, and therefore he was unique in being born without the stain of original sin. And that got confused Uh, It was Mary who was immaculately conceived. So the Immaculate Conception refers to Mary, not to Jesus, Mm -hmm. but the fact that she was not only a virgin, but uh, without original sin attached to her is what made Jesus the perfect character that he was. And that gets confused constantly with people thinking that it's the same thing as virgin birth. That's Jesus' conception and birth versus Mary's conception, which is the one that was the Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. But, of course, in politics, if somebody says your statement is bull, that means it's not infallible at all.
1: That's that's right. And this is not related to bully pulpit. You might think, oh, there we go, bully pulpit. But that was just a coinage by Theodore Roosevelt. Right. Did we talk about this on the podcast before? I certainly did in the book. But you have an entry in the book on bully pulpit, Yes. But I don't know that we have on the podcast.
0: Well, even if we did, it's worth repeating because yeah. it gets talked about a lot. Bully. Oh, yeah, I know we talked about bully in the in the uh, episode that where we talking about uh, terms of praise for people. But bully was a, a positive adjective, something that was good. It was really bully. That's a bully idea. I mean, that was a terrific idea. It's great. Uh, we admire it. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so when Roosevelt said the presidency was a bully pulpit, he meant it was a really effective, really good place from which to get your ideas accepted around. Not that you did things by bullying people. He certainly could behave like a bully at times. Mm-hmm. But when he used the phrase, he did not mean to suggest the use of force, but just saying this is just a swell. <laughs> yeah.
1: This is a really fantastic pulpit. It's really, really great.
0: (laughs) Pulpit being a religious term, of course, having to do with uh, where you give sermons in a church. So when journalists use it today and and a lot of the public use it, they sometimes get it confused and use the modern meaning of the word bully to think that a bully pulpit means somebody who's trying to bully people. And it's certainly gotten thrown around around the Trump presidency in, in that sense.
1: Right, so uh, let's let's talk some more about the usage, uh, bull, the way you're talking about it, as it relates to casting votes.
0: Yeah, there actually is a connection. Originally, you cast a vote literally by throwing a vote into a receptacle. Now we insert them into a ballot box, but in the old days, they they weren't always on paper. Uh, late in the nineteenth century, the term casting the vote was invented to describe the practice of the ancient Greeks who dropped a pebble into one of two urns to signify what choice they wanted to make and so the the bula was the little ball of clay or the pebble that they would uh, use to cast their votes or actually literally throwing it into it and in later cultures, uh, beans or small balls called ballots were used for the same purpose. And we use the word ballot to mean this, the same thing. And it's not a ball anymore. We've lost that connection with it. There's an older meaning to cast up, meaning to count or calculate. So theoretically, you could cast up how many votes were cast.
1: Okay. So, of course, you know, when we talk about to cast your ballot, that's where that comes from. And when you cast your ballot, you're participating in an election. An election is another word we need to talk about.
0: From Latin, eligere, to choose. Mm -hmm. Whoever is chosen has been elected. Uh, There were other meanings, though. The elect could be made up of people considered excellent or noble. So the elect would be having a party in the country uh, with lots of servants running around. But in Christianity, the elect are those chosen by God for salvation. So it's uh, not the people choosing the leader, but in this case, the leader choosing the people. And you still find some Christian denominations where the term elect is used in that sense. But it was used that way for a long time before democratic elections were evolved in, in Western Europe.
1: Yeah, and of course the electorate is the people that are doing the electing. Right. So it has the same same suffix that you see in the words Senate and Caliphate. Right. Also some political terms.
0: And voting, we've been talking about voting here. So originally it originally meant vow. People would vote to undertake some deed with a solemn oath. So you vow to do something. That was called a vote. The word votive refers to the thing or action that's the subject of the vow. So if you swore an oath to make a sacrifice to a god, that was a votive offering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the simplest kind of offering like that is a candle, now called a votive candle, or simply a votive. Now, mm-hmm. votive candles are usually in uh, glass containers, and you want them to burn a long time because you want to get the maximum amount of uh, flame for your buck to get your prayer being offered up to heaven to last a long time more secular are tea lights which usually come in a, a circular metal case and they're they're shorter and they were originally invented to keep tea warm that's where the name tea light comes from mm. but photo candles and tea lights get pretty cross-pollinated uh, and sometimes they're used interchangeably in certain kinds of fixtures.
1: Mm -hmm. We don't normally think about that when we light a, a votive, that this is related to the word vote.
0: Well, very distantly. Uh, by the 15th century, the term vote had come to have its modern meaning of making a choice on an issue or a candidate. Of course, at that time, it's, they weren't democratic elections, but they were bodies of nobles, or there could be people in a, a professional organization. Uh, there are all kinds of places where voting might take place, uh, besides uh, large democratic elections that we have now.
1: Well, one thing that we don't vote on is the Constitution. That's already been decided, right? A constitution, that's another term we need to discuss, but it's not really up for a vote.
0: Not generally, although it certainly was when it was first formed. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. And it's its what gave us our system of voting in the United States. To constitute something is to set it up, establish it, create it. So the founding articles of a nation may be its constitution, um, they they create the constitution of the country in a sense. In earlier usage, it was more loosely used to label all kinds of decrees and laws, usually made by a superior authority. But today, and more loosely, it's the system or body of principles according to which a nation is constituted and governed. And that's the sense it's used in the UK. They don't have a written constitution, which they have it's a lot of legal decisions and precedents and customs and laws, which all together make up the Constitution. It's something that Americans have a hard time wrapping their mind around and saying, how can they say that's against the British Constitution? They don't even have one. But it was defined by Viscount Bolingbroke in 1735 when he wrote, By constitution we mean whenever we speak with propriety and exactness, that assemblage of laws, institutions, and customs derived from certain fixed principles of reason that compose the general system according to which the community hath agreed to be governed. And that's a pretty good description of Mm -hmm. what the British Constitution is like. In the U.S., before 1789, no such body of law existed, so the Constitution was written into a single document. They didn't have a history in back of them that could be labeled the Constitution. So they had to start from scratch. And so that was the first time that a country had done this, and then that becomes more and more popular as time goes on imitating the U.S.
1: Right. And as we noted before the Constitution and the articles that are attached to it and amendments to the Constitution, which are very difficult to do. It's hard to get an amendment attached to the Constitution. But it's sort of for a reason, because uh, you want the Constitution to be that set of rules and restrictions against which you cannot pass a law.
0: Yeah, there's been some liberals arguing recently that we ought to have a constitutional convention to ban um, private money in politics mm-hmm. and a scary thing about that is once you have one of those set up anything goes they could take away the first amendment they could require everybody to carry a gun you yeah. you, you know there's no limit so mm-hmm. actually we generally sh- have in recent decades shied away from having constitutional amendments because uh, the voting that's involved in there can be hard to control the one that was campaigned for for a long time was the equal rights amendment for mm-hmm. women Right. Uh, which finally failed, uh, partly because of misunderstandings, as uh, we've talked about before, thinking that it would horror of horrors allow women to go into men's restrooms and vice versa, and the women would be in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> that has become less controversial, although still somewhat. And uh, they had put a limit on the amount of time that could pass before the constitutional amendment would uh, go into effect. And unfortunately, it expired. I think it it probably would have eventually passed if it hadn't been for that time limit.
1: That experience speaks to the difficulty of getting an amendment passed. It was a fairly milquetoast kind of proposal (laughs) when you think about it. It feels like it should have just skated right through. But of course, you know, Even the concept of amending the Constitution automatically is a knee-jerk reaction against that. So you have to overcome that hurdle before you can even get your ideas put in there. Well, how does a parliamentary system work? What's a parliament? uh, Here in the U.S., we don't understand it too well, so let's, let's talk about that.
0: All right. So Parliament comes from a French word, uh, which has to do with a place to talk and uh, talking and discussing. Parley is the word for talking in French. To Mm -hmm. talk is parley. You have the uh, expression in Old West films, you know, well, let's get down and have a parley, (laughs) have a little negotiation. So the early European parliaments began mostly as groups of nobles that would be summoned periodically by a ruler to meet and discuss something of importance. Often the ruler having got himself into deep water over spending too much and needing some more funds and trying to get his nobles to agree to come up with them. In some cases, there have been cases where parliaments chose new kings. Later, they became more institutionalized and weren't just occasional events that were summoned by a a monarch. And modern systems, the parliament is the government in a typical parliamentary system like england's or frances the the party owning holding the majority of seats in the parliament creates the government the head of state it's part the party leader of the winning party becomes the premier so when you vote you're really voting for a party and the members of the party and if enough members of that party form a majority then uh, the leading members of that party become the cabinet members so uh Hereditary rulers can still exist, like in England, but they're just these theoretical heads of state we've talked about before. Now, sometimes Americans getting frustrated with their two-party system think, wouldn't it be nice to have a parliamentary system like the ones that they have so widely in Europe? And there are some advantages. It gives you a wider array of choices. For a long time, a lot of people have been discouraged by American politics by saying there's really no difference between the uh, Democrats and the Republicans, they overlap so much. We don't have a true leftist party or a true rightist party with any influence. Believe it or not, even with the country as divided as it is right now and with Congress, the spectacle of division it is, I'm still seeing leftists saying there's really no essential difference between the two parties. I think that's extremely destructive way of thinking, but um, it's something that goes around. The problems arise when no one party has a majority. You, know, you have several parties and so the, they have to form a coalition. And that means that the party in power is going to be influenced by smaller parties, some of which have interests that are very opposed to things that that party wants, but they have to compromise on them. And a classic example of that is in Israel, where the parties have consistently haven't given the fundamentalist Orthodox Jews. a uh, a veto over a lot of things requiring restrictive laws having to do with traditional religious practice, which the vast majority of the citizens do not like. And most Jews in Israel are secular, not highly religious. But the religious minority gets a way bigger influence than would be the case if it were a democracy in the, the American sense because of this need to form coalitions. And so you can find that your politics get very distorted uh, by that practice. Now, the governments here, we have a presidency that lasts for four years, a maximum of eight years. Um, we have a Senate where the term is six years, representatives for two possible of re-election in both those cases and in Europe the parliamentary governments usually have a term of office as well but they have another custom often where a, a there can be a vote of no confidence in parliament and that can be the end of a particular government and they have to have a new election. And that happened just recently in in England in what's called a snap election. In that case, the uh, May, who thought that she had a lot more support behind her than she really did, thought she could solidify her support by calling for a, a vote to get the conservatives more solid control. And it backfired and she lost her. Her party was driven from power. So it's a destabilizing thing. Uh, these can be very quick, too. They're called snap elections. They, they It's almost like the snap of the fingers. American elections tend to be very drawn out. Uh, we're already talking about uh, whether Trump will get a second term. And some people are reportedly raising funds for a presidential run against him in the next presidential election, uh, where in a lot of countries, it's a matter of a couple of weeks or less than a month a campaign. And that seems very attractive. On the other hand, it, momentary uh, upsurges in public opinion that are swayed sometimes by irrational considerations can sweep over a country and make a snap election go in a direction that doesn't work too well.
1: Right. That certainly did backfire for Theresa May. But boy, having shorter campaigns... <laughs> Sounds pretty appealing.
0: Yeah, especially since they don't allow a paid advertisement in a lot of countries the way we do for campaigns.
1: Right. And we talked a little bit about how the president works in these uh, systems. So let's talk a little bit about what's a premier versus a president. How does that work?
0: Yeah, the premier, as I said, is usually the uh, head of the leading party uh, in France. It, it turned out that the um the new premier uh, didn't really have much of a party and had to kind of create one on the fly after winning the election uh, because various scandals drove the other candidates out of the running. And so he's kind of created a party, which now is sort of a shambles. But premiers don't have this absolute security in office that a president has. A president you might try to remove. We could talk about that later. It's very, very difficult. It's not hard to remove a premier. All you need to do is get enough people to discuss with you and get voted out. However, in Russia, Vladimir Putin began as Russia's prime minister under President Boris Yeltsin, and Yeltsin sent seated this by uh, he became acting president so he moved from the prime ministership to the presidency which is very unusual and it's not the kind of thing that normally happens it's not like the vice president becoming the president in the united states They're really distinct offices but he reshaped that office and in the next election putin was elected to the office of president prime minister, and mm-hmm. he was barred by the Constitution from having a third in succession. Now, we have the constitutional amendment that says that a president can't run for two terms any time in his life, and Russia is just two consecutive terms. So, what he did mm-hmm. was, uh, when Dmitry Medvedev was elected as president, uh, he had Medvedev appoint pr- Putin as the premier uh, which maintained his power mm-hmm. And they've sort of just handed power back and forth But it's always landed up In Putin's hands Medvedev is sort of his puppet Medvedev urged him to run for president In 2012 and he still holds The office today so he's changed The presidency essentially into A prime ministership so these offices can change mm-hmm. in function depending on who's in them. Mm-hmm. Whichever office Putin holds is the one with the power.
1: Right. In effect, he's, he's uh, positioned himself as a, something of an autocrat. Uh, it just depends. He'll be in office up there somewhere. And wherever he is, that's where you pay attention. Well, Paul, we've done it again. Uh, we've, t- we've talked about parliamentary systems and um, we talked about uh,
0: elections uh, and voting.
1: Yeah, elections and casting votes and and papal bulls, and we have we have more to talk about. Uh, let's save some of this more theory stuff for next time. Um, we've got uh, left versus right, and uh, how those terms are used, and socialist. Lots more to discuss, but uh, I think we need to save that for another time. We'll we'll talk again later. Okay, Tom. So long. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.